0: You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Welcome to episode 29 of the Archaeology and Ale podcast, a free monthly public archaeology talk brought to you by Archaeology in the City, the community outreach program of the University of Sheffield's Department of Archaeology. The talks take place at the Red Deer, a popular pub on Pitt Street in Sheffield near the Archaeology Department. It is a busy place, so there might be some background noise in our recording, and be advised that strong language may be used from time to time. This month, our guest speaker is Duncan Wright from BGU, speaking to us about Lofton and the Landscapes of Conquest.
1: Cheers, uh, thanks for having me and thanks for coming along. Um, I'm really flattered that you came to hear me talk about Rotherham, essentially, um, (laughs) which is what uh, tonight's about. Um, I've divided this talk into two sections, really. First bit, all about Lawton, our work there, Um, I've been leading this project, There's been a fair few contributors but really I'm the sort of the project lead. Um, All elements I should say and I really should have a logo here have been uh, funded by the um, Castle uh, Studies Trust and so they've given us money for the two phases of work. Uh, So I want to talk about Lawton, what we found, what we think it means about this particular place in South Yorkshire um, but also what that then Tells us about landscape for conquest more broadly, and about the Norman conquest and how we understand that archaeologically. So those are the the kind of the, the two aims of the talk. Now. For those of you that don't know, Lawton lies just to the south and the east of Rotherham, um, essentially where the M1 and the M18 meet. Um, If you're coming up the the moto from the south, if you look to the right, the spire's quite distinctive. You can see it from a fair distance. Um, It sits in quite a a prominent place in the landscape. Um, The outcrop of limestone runs kind of north to south um, as you look at that up up and down on the map. Um, You can see um, on a clear day from Lawton, Lincoln Cathedral and the views to the peaks are really really impressive as well so it's in a very very high point in the landscape the place name is of interest. The first element is not so interesting. It means the Lawton bit probably means like a herb garden or a leek garden. Not that interesting. But the Unlemorethin is, is very, very interesting. The, um, the wider district in the medieval period was called Morthen. I'll talk about that in a little bit and Lawton's relationship to it. But um, it appears to be derived from the term Morthing, which is moorland, the moor bit, and then a thing being a, an assembly place. So it's talking about an assembly place in the moor a few ideas about where that place assembly might be again probably under the m1 or the m18 at some some point Uh, but some other ideas have been chucked around again i'll talk about those in a bit So, looking at more than uh, in a bit more uh, detail, um, obviously, what my interest really is as a medievalist, and I've I've been aware of the site for a fair while, um, is that it has a castle, and the castle sits at the uh, the western end of the village. And you can actually see, sorry, I'll go back again. So the castle sits just here. And actually, the, you can see from the, the contour lines here quite how rapidly it drops off to the west here. So the, the castle does sit on quite a nodal point in the landscape, and the village does too. Um, but I don't want to sort of overemphasise that too much. A lot of what I'm going to say tonight is not about castles being just military. I'm more interested about why castles are placed while they are for like social reasons, for re- reasons of elite residence and continuity in elite residents. So it is an anodal point, but I don't think it's really a, a strategic choice to place the castle here necessarily. Again, that's zoomed in uh, slightly more closely there. The castle sitting at the, the west end, as I said. Um, interestingly and significantly, the church is located very, very adjacent to the castle. Now, a lot of times in castle studies, when you get a church located this closely, sometimes churches start off as almost like castle chapels and then develop into parish churches. This isn't quite the case here. The church is older and I think far more interesting than your usual castle church development. But again, I'll talk about that in just a second. Other things you can see from the street topography: um, very sort of distinctive sort of square enclosure. Lost a little bit in the modern development here, but it comes through. I'll show you some history historic maps in a minute um, that sort of uh, go into that a bit more detail but the interesting thing here is that we seem to have a castle, a church and also a planned settlement. Now as archaeologists dating all that is very Difficult, um, especially in South Yorkshire, where a lot of the the early medieval period, so from about 400 to about 1100, uh, it's a ceramics. We don't have any, any any pottery to deal with, uh, so dating the phases is quite difficult. But we do have an interesting settlement plan as well. That's what it looks like. It doesn't. That's Warwick Castle. That's that's what a, you know. That's what a castle looks like. And this is when I say I'm interested in castle studies. People go, "Oh yeah, I went to like Windsor," and I'm like, "I'm not interested in that." Um, it's really sad. Um, I'm more interested in castles that look a bit rubbish, actually. Uh, what you might call sort of unimpressive. But I actually think oh, it's a shame it's been chopped off the end of there. But this is an earthwork castle. There's no indication of any stone-built um, construction here at Lord. Um, purely it seems to be timber and turf um, and this seems to be a very very early castle so generally um, we do get stone castles from an early period the white tower the tower of london is a famous one uh, and york seems to have one as well but generally um, this type of early castle 11th century castle we don't generally get a lot of um a lot of stonework but it's a it's a beautiful spot I would recommend you visit uh, but you can see that the castle type here this is a large motte. it sits at about eight or nine metres and then we have what we call a bailey so that's a, an earthwork enclosure now at the time it probably would have been um, enhanced with a palisade a wooden palisade round it uh, and there seems to be a gap in the enclosure on the church side there as well uh, from the top of the motte, as I said views to Lincoln um, but also to the peaks as well it's a really lovely spot and it's one you know very fortunate family's back garden as well so they were very very generous and I should make a point <coughs> of thanking uh, Mark Ferris and his family who not only let us into his garden but but let us you know mess it up and dig it up and I didn't think he didn't quite understand quite how long 20 meters was when we said we want to put a <laughs> 20 meter trench in. <laughs> you know maybe you've got feet and meters mixed up um so the previous work at Lawton uh, pretty un, well, unimpressive, but, but not a huge amount of it. Um, an amazing named chap called Chalky Gould uh, in 1904 was the first person to cite um, a Dooms- Doomsday reference uh, in relation to Lawton. Before that, um, the earthworks had been recognised and they'd just been called uh, British or Prehistoric, they were thought to, to relate some, some sort of dim, uh, distant past. Uh, they weren't seen as medieval in nature. But Chalky Gould was the first to say, actually, there's a, there's a Doomsday Book reference, which is really, really interesting. Um in in relation to Lawton. And so the Doomsday Book was written in in 1086. It's a a survey commissioned by William the Conqueror 20 years after his initial conquest of England. And essentially it's a a glorified tax tax assessment. It talks about um, how much uh, each manorial area, each area owns, right down to the last pig. It's very, very detailed. Uh, What it says about Lawton, though, which is very, very interesting, it says that before the conquest, Lawton was a site of Earl Edwin's Owler now that's the old English word for a hall Earl Edwin was a very very high-ranking noble he's essentially a a royal individual Um, he is brother-in-law of Harold of the you know arrow-in-the-eye fame so you know not just a sort of your average um, sort of sanely individual or lord but a very very high-ranking lord and it says that he has an owler here he has a hall and the the assumption is that this is one of his many residences so very very important place Um, however it was a year later that Ella Armitage was the first to identify the Mott and Bailey as as not being the owler everyone previous to it and Chalky Gould included said that this sort of Mott and Bailey must be the Owler must be Earl Edwin's Hall. And actually it was Ella Armitage who said, no, this is post-conquest. This <coughs> this Mont- and Bailey Castle is actually a Norman thing. And her work was very important with that. And she actually associates it with the first Norman lord in the area, Roger de Boosley. Um, and I, I think she's she's correct in that. Um, however, throughout the kind of the later 20th century. Not much further work, uh, substantial work, no excavation. Uh, the survey, even the ordnance um, uh, survey uh, sort of map of it seems to be based on a very, very early sketch. Um, the widespread belief, uh, and this is what we were kind of attracted to as a project team, was that Earl Edwin's hall, the Anglo-Saxon hall, his residence lay underneath the earthworks of the castle. That was the widespread belief, but no one had tested it. And so that was our main aim as a project team was like, does, does the whole sort of lie under that? And then, what does that actually mean? And I, th- I think those questions are really significant, really important uh, about the conquest. What happens? What happens with castles? Are they here to, you know, just be military, or actually are these kind of statements of, you know, new people in power? You know, elite transfer of places of residence. If this is an individual's elite residence, um, somebody coming in, you know, another, the new elite building, essentially a complete new form. is is very interesting and significant. So as you can see, I mean, I don't want to sort of knock my old boss, but this is Chalky Gould's sketch from 1904, and Ollie Crichton's in A Century Later is pretty much the same. So a kind of a a, a lack of more substantive work been done at Lalton, despite people like Ollie saying, this is really interesting. No one had really tested that thesis that the the hole lay underneath the castle. There has been um, excavation undertaken in the village itself, and the results were, were, were pretty um, interesting too. So this area of rectory Farm, so the high streets there, the castle to the left here, um, quite a large area uh, in advance of development, excavated in, I think, 2005 to, to six it was. Um, this is the kind of the complete plot you've got some um later material especially late medieval kilns it's very impressive but for our purposes which is quite interesting they did identify a late saxon kiln it looks a bit like this but, you know an impressive to to know to many people but actually it came with lots and lots of ceramics as well so a very rare instance of south yorkshire having pre-conquest ceramics so it seems to be a center of industry perhaps serving a wider area but again i'll mention that a bit later on so we were particularly excited by those results because it suggested that if we did excavate, we might actually have dating material, we might actually have um, some ceramics that we could date to the pre-conquest <clears throat> period. Just to mention All Saints Church and a little bit of work that's been done there as well. Um, it's really worth visiting and going around. It's a lovely spot, as I said, and the church itself is is great. and It's often open, which is not always the case anymore. Um, really prominently for, for our interest, for our purposes, is there is... Uh, fabric within the church that is pre-conquest origin. This lovely doorway here, this outer one, sorry, Up is it, Yeah, um, this here, that is very typical, very, very early Romanesque, dating to the late 10th, early 11th century. Um, we've managed to phase that. We've done some funky 3D models as well. Um, we've also got this reused. This is a, a triangular-headed window, uh, which are very typical of 10th, 11th century architecture. It's been reused as a piscina. It now sits in the chancel of the church. Um, wonderful thing, but clearly a big substantial building was here before the reconstruction. The, the church itself is mostly 13th century, but these fragments suggest there's a, a big uh, Anglo-Saxon building here. We're almost certain that's a church. The Anglo-Saxons didn't really build um, Anything else out of stone? Even until the 11th century, secular residences—you know, Alfred the Great, um, Edward the Confessor—they were living in wooden-built uh, constructions. It's the church that has the preserve of stone. Uh, we've also got in the uh, the eastern end of the chancel this lovely uh, piece of stone here. This is a 10th-century grave cover as well. So another indicator of um, something going on before the conquest at Lawton so in terms of our work what we did the first thing we did was undertake um, an earth resistance survey so this is a, a type of geophysical survey it, essentially if anyone's a cricket fan it's a kind of glorified version of like Richie Benno's dampometer I remember he used to get his you know sort of keys and then the dampometer it's really what it does it measures resistance uh, in the soil by passing a very small electronic current uh, through it um, and then depending on what's underneath it we get high and low readings and if if we um, we find anomalies in the ground we can try and interpret them now unfortunately this this image is not brilliant just because it's really scaled up so you' got to have to take my word for it but what we do have um, and what we're able to do is actually undertake some survey we did some in, in the village and we were hoping for for some evidence of like medieval settlement tenements and something interesting there. It's pretty much a mess. We didn't find anything really significant. Um, This was the site of a a later medieval and post-medieval hall, so there's a lot of noise, a lot of background stuff going on, which is a bit unfortunate. Have a, we did undertake um, some survey in the Bailey and also this area to the south of the Mott Bailey. Um, people have identified this as a, as a second Bailey, a second enclosure. To my mind, there's no evidence of that. It's just the area immediately south of the castle. Um, in the north, northern part of the survey, in the uh, the Bailey you, Again you just have to take my word for it But we've got lots and lots of areas Of, um, sort of high resistance We seem to have buildings there They look like uh, medieval buildings They look like, actually like a hall Now we can't really date that with just this survey alone um, But we think it's actually probably pre-Castle and actually that the Bailey is encircling um, the pre-Conquest halls, which is really significant. What we were really excited ab- uh, about, and I should say Sam Bromage was amazing, <laughs> this. he did the work with me, did the survey and the excavation as well as other helpers like Kate. Um, <laughs> sorry, not, I'm not seeing you, Sam, hello. <laughs> um, was this area to the south. Now, um, if you could see particularly this L-shaped feature here, this sort of negative anomaly, which seems to be low resistance, and it looks like a ditch. So ditches on this type of survey, ditches that hold water, ditches underground the ground hold water. That is sort of conducive to, to um, electronic sort of, um, well, they're, they're less resistant, they conduct the electricity. So we seem to have a ditch under the ground, and some more ditches emanating to the south as well. So it seems to have a lot going on. And that haven't been many sort of examples of Anglo-Saxon elite residents excavated, but these sort of features particularly got us quite excited and actually look like the ditches are, are sort of an enclosed ditch surrounding like a whole complex. We seem to have a hole at the top, the aula, we think, and actually down here we have um, some of this sort of the, the palisade a ditch that would have surrounded it. But we, we weren't really satisfied with just doing that, so we did some topographic survey as well. Um, um, and Adam Sanford of, of Aerial Cam came in and did a drone survey. I should have really put the links in actually, but I can put those on Twitter and circulate those as well because we have th- these quite nice interactive 3D models from this work. Um, again, just trying to find any further archaeological features through this sort of work. We do, you can just about see some linear anomalies there. There's one there and one there which mirror our geophysics. Again, it looks like the hulls orientated in a broadly east-west direction. Um, not huge amount of, of further evidence from that but quite a nice sense of the landscape from that drone plot as well. So we thought we'd found our aula, we thought we'd found part of the, the palisade, the enclosure around it as well, but we wanted to test that and especially with that idea that we had pre-conquest ceramics kicking around in the village that we could actually solidly date that as well. The church itself, um, again, it's, it's just the scale. On my laptop, it's, it's great, I promise. But the scale um, is washing a, a bit of this out, but... The, sort of, um, the Eye of Faith, you might see a little anomaly here, a little rise, and it actually continues into the bailey as well. And sounds very nicely illustrated it for us as well on this image here. Um, it seems to be that the, the church sits within its own enclosure as well, and that is significant. So this is the later Medi- medieval and, and sort of post-medieval churchyard, but before that we have uh, a nice bank suggesting that the, not only the hall lies in an enclosure, but the church is in its own little enclosure as well. So that's the kind of comparative. This now flipped, you can see this anomaly much, much uh, more impressively, and you can see the the whites as well, just of the whole orientated broadly east-west. And that's just our interpretation of it as well, but I've talked through most of that, so I won't dwell on it. Okay, so our excavation really focused on two areas. Uh, We're really interested in particularly dating that palisade. There's a few reasons for that. This was the kind of most impressive anomaly, if you like, but also it wasn't scheduled. And you can excavate scheduled monuments, but it's far more difficult, it's far more restricted. Um, and this area to, to the top, and actually the Mott here, which we surveyed, didn't find a huge amount, um, was scheduled as well. But this area was just Mark's garden, so we could we could do what we wanted with it. Uh, so we put essentially a slot across the east, um, east-west to get the northern-southern uh, extension here, and then again, um, catching this east-west extension there, and that's what they broadly look like. But again, it was slightly washed out at this scale. There they are in relation to the castle itself, and this area is kind of out of bounds because it's scheduled. Uh, is it going to work? It's start working. Oh, there you go. Um, so that's uh, excavation. That's pretty much the start of the excavation. So two trenches, uh, as I said, Mark didn't realise quite how. Long twenty meters was. Um, it was. We were trying to, like not kill any children. I think it's fair to say, because <laughs> you can see the um, yeah the goalpost in the background. And we did start encroaching onto the usable part of the garden. To be fair, this this part was a bit more sort of uh, wet and not not that pleasant. But um, he was very patient. I think it's fair to say. Um, and so yeah, hand excavation. The uh, the soil was taken off by a machine, and once we identified features, we started excavating them. And I should. So uh, this got, as you I know, said, help from Sam and also Kate. Uh, but Sam did a lot of the physical labor. Um, just younger, fitter and a better archaeologist, so it's <laughs> probably fair to say. Uh, but yeah, the interpretation as well. Uh, and we were kind of slightly misguided. We were hoping to find nice sort of brown soil indicating our ditches, but actually it was a very, very compacted. And instead we got these, these rock cut ditches. So the ditches seem to be cut directly into this sort of limestone Broken limestone bedrock here. Um, we got absolutely no dating material from it. So you know, our big headline of let's find you know the, the hall and date it, and it's definitely going to be pre-conquest. Yeah, it didn't really happen. What we did find was a remarkably consistent fill. I think that's fair, isn't it, Sam? It, um, and that is quite interesting in itself. Um, but yeah, nothing to, to firmly date it. Likewise, in the second trench. We, we did find the features that we expected to find, if you like, but absolutely no dating material. So this is um, the outer ditch. So we had we had sort of the palisaded ditch, if you like, which we were really interested in in both the trenches. Um, but we also had the ditch, which we think relates to the the settlement enclosure as well. Uh, and that is, I think, actually trench two, which is the uh, the sort of east west extension, if you like, had the nicer. Ditch profile, uh, and you can see it here quite clearly. And especially, you can see the very, very narrow, shallow base. Uh, and we found what looked like the scrapes of even like the stakes being removed. So, imagine a, a palisade, so a sort of a wooden fence running along here, um, sort of stakes going in and then. Um, sort of slats going across it it seems that from the fill very consistent has gone in quite quickly but also we seem to have evidence of the stakes being pulled out as well so what we kind of expected We not many of these things have been excavated comprehensively as I said but all of them all these high status owlers these these elite residences of the Anglo-Saxon period seem to be essentially wooden palisades nothing big and built out stone but uh, relatively uh, ephemeral archaeology And that's our official photo, but the light was terrible, so I'm not sure what we're gonna have to do. I might have to graft our um, measuring because that's a lovely profile, but wasn't quite finished. And then the sun came out um, and then mucked up our official photo, so I have to sort of botch that in post I think. Okay, so that's you know that's what our excavation. That's what we found. We found what we think we wanted to find. It was slightly frustrating. We didn't get anything to date it, but we're relatively confident, uh, despite that, that we did identify uh, this palisade enclosure. And actually, that is pre-conquest. It dates to before the castle. We did find some ceramics. We got a couple of bits of later medieval, and we got about twelve shirts of Roman stuff. Which is you know you just think this whole thing is medieval, and then the Romans turn up. I don't know what that's really about but um, all of those were residual they don't seem to have any relation to what I'm talking about Uh, but there seems to be a Roman presence uh, presence in the area Um, there is an antiquarian um, reference to a tessellated pavement being found somewhere in the village and our evidence is the only more substantive or certainly the only archaeological evidence that we found of, of any Roman activity so that's to be confirmed but it doesn't seem to have any bearing on what we're interested in so uh, sort of slightly uh, optimistic reconstruction but I think bearing it on you know on other excavated examples we seem to have an enclosure a bit like this so we've got its extension its corner here and if I put that in it probably extends encompasses the halls at the top and also we have a separate enclosure with the church with this big important uh, pre-conquest church in its own enclosure as well which is a very very similar pattern to that identified at Raun This is probably the most, the best excavated example of a a Thaney residence that we have in the whole country. The only slight variation in our evidence is that we think the halls are broadly orientated east-west. But you can see there's a very, very close uh, symmetry there. We have a church and cemetery in its own enclosure and this sort of slightly larger um, arrangement for the the halls, the domestic dwelling area as well. So that's what we think is really going on. We're almost certain that we have Earl Edwins Hall and the castle line over the top of it. Just to talk about the church as well, um, my friend Michael shaplin has been looking at the church. Um, he's very, very interested in, in Anglo-Saxon sculpture and um, yeah, Anglo-Saxon churches primarily. Um, that wonderful doorway. Uh, for a long time, people have thought that it was reset. That must have moved, and essentially, it was used in sort of the 13th or the 15th century as a kind of a intellectual curiosity that they kind of picked it up. And when they were re- rebuilding the church, that they've they've reset it. Uh, Michael's now pretty confident that that's not the case, that that's actually in situ. So that that doorway is where it always has been. Um, And there's three possible reconstructions of what the the Anglo-Saxon church might have looked like based on that that piece of evidence. Um, The second one down here, that would be... (laughs) a very, very substantial church. We don't think it's a, a minster church, and that's the reconstruction there. The third one, and see, this is a form that's not really recognised in Anglo-Saxon building, so we're almost certain that we have um, a church that looked a bit like this, a freestanding, what we call a tower nave church, um, really pretty much a private church for the Lord, not a, you know, not a sort of a, a parish church, not for, for public <coughs> use, but essentially that Earl Edwin was having, you know, had a private church to, to go along with his, um, you know, his his residence. Uh, what of churches look like, very, very few still standing. This is a, a lovely example, at Barton-upon-Humber uh, in Lincolnshire though. You have this central tower which also acts as the kind of congregation area of your very very small group, basically the, the lord and his immediate um, entourage uh, and sometimes you have a baptistry like here, you might have a tiny little chancel as well but really these aren't churches as we understand them in the, in the later medieval period they're very very much for, well, for private worship but also private display you imagine these things are the only stone built thing in the landscape, a real sort of symbol of elite power. Uh, building upon that and also sort of consolidating that idea I think is the evidence from just down the road outside of Lawton so we've got our castle here and it's you know it's a, a sort of a precursor if you like and the private church we've got something very odd going on down at St John's now I'm almost certain that St John's is actually the original parish church for Lawton and that probably well into the medieval period that church up in the, vi- the village centre was actually um, a private a private chapel, and that's sort of meted out in the in the sort of uh, the parish boundaries. You can see how weirdly the th- this is now. Saint John's is now in Thropen Parish, doesn't really make sense. You lo- look at how that's been included, um, and it's, there's other indicators too. There's there's a lot of Lawton personal names in in all the kind of the grave memorials, and it seems to be that actually Lawton was originally served by this this church at Saint John's. Just to finish the the idea of of pre-conquest Lawton as well, it's it's really very interesting that it sits within a very, very extensive estate. Um, Often they have these Lawton place names as well. Uh, Lawton seems to be a very important central place. However, at this time, we shouldn't be looking for one single important place. Um, It's it's a time when functions are kind of shared around, so the assembly seems to be slightly further to the west, but Lawton does seem to draw in, um, yeah, it seems to have a lot of importance and it has a lot of influence, so it seems to own a lot of these churches who have to give it dues well into the uh, the later medieval period. And also, as we saw earlier, it's a place of resource production and processing as well, um, well into the later medieval period. So, it's it's part of this large and very interesting state. How old this is, we're not really sure, um, but our expert thinks it's actually 10th century. I was really hoping for it to be like 6th century and like a kingdom, but it doesn't seem to be the case. (coughs) So then Lawton before the conquest, what have we got? And I think it's interesting to to try and put all this together, and all this material is actually quite closely dated. It's, It's all kind of late 10th, early 11th century, and we seem to be Having somebody or a group of people who are really trying to make their mark. Now, whether this is Earl Edwin, the Earls of Mercia more broadly, but we have these kind of like technologies of of sort of elite power, if you like, and the kind of expressions of elite power. So we've got our residence, including a private church. We have a, an extensive area which it draws upon. And also we've got evidence of funerary sculpture. Unfortunately, the sculpture we can't date quite so closely. Um, it might well be early Norman. But we have this, this really interesting and very, very significant um, elite signature, if you like, before the conquest. Now, sort of the, the second part, I'm really just for the last sort of five minutes or so, to talk about castles more broadly, what Lawton tells us about um, castles in a, in, a, in a more general sense, and a few things to say about the Norman Conquest. Now, we all th- know about the Norman Conquest, or at least we think we know about it. You know, 1066. I think it's meant to be sort of like a third of people's pin numbers. So, if, if it is, like cha- change it. Apparently, British people can't remember four other numbers, which is ter- terrifying, isn't it? Um, but, you know, the arrow in the eye, all the rest of it And Battle of Hastings and the Normans are in town That's partly true But actually, the conquest was a much more protracted uh, thing than that It didn't last, in, you know, it didn't sort of end in one battle Yes, Hastings is decisive and it's important But it's a good 20 years. The Doomsday Book's not commissioned for another 20 years. And you can probably say that, I would say, is the end of the conquest, where William feels confident enough that he can conduct a a tax survey. Uh, So we have things like Exeter in 1068, a a significant uh, siege, and uh, eventually it falls. Uh, And you've got this wonderful uh, example of, of very early Norman, but actually using Saxon Masons. This looks like the Normans are commissioning local people to build a tower, and they build a church tower, despite being at the castle they, they build this thing and it looks that's more at home in a saxon church than it is in a Norman castle um i should say also there's a bit of a family thing going on it's, it seems to be harold's mum who's leading a lot of the rebellion here so you know you kill my son there's got to be some um sort of consequences but also in the north of england we have what's known as the harrying of the north where there seems to be a really substantial um yeah, conflict. The Normans—they've they've been accused of sort of genocide as well. There's not a huge amount of recording of what's actually happening, but for, for several years, perhaps even the, the two full decades, there is a lot of um, yeah destruction, uh, a sort of a, a burn earth policy, really trying to stop all the rebellions from the Normans as well. I think actually the Dooms, the um, Bay of Tapestry. Sorry, that's one of the first depictions of, of refugees um, in in uh, medieval Europe. So it's a protracted process. It doesn't happen overnight. as different parts of the country come under influence. Yes, the Conquerors crowned on Christmas Day 1066, but really it's a much, much longer process than that. And Lawton at the conquest, I think this is you know the harrying of the north it 's in that context in which I see the castle being built. The idea of the the infilling of those ditches being very, very rapid, the fact we 've got no ceramics from it does suggest we 've not got sort of a, a long lived place as well and actually Lawton, really the, the castle its raison d 'etre is kind of met by its very construction um, i 'll talk about the kind of wider, wider landscape in a minute, but this is about elite power transfer the fact we've got no real evidence of medieval settlement you know if this is a castle that's used into the 13th or the 15th century we'd expect loads of stuff animal bone medieval pot all that stuff but actually i think the very purpose of the castle at lawton is just being built it's sort of a seal it's a very symbolic um thing of, you know, new power in town, and actually, it probably wasn't even used once it was constructed. It just said, here's the new authority. And I think castles are often doing that across the country. And that's sort of, um, substantiated slightly by the fact that after the conquest, Lawton's incorporated into something called the Honour of Blythe Tickle, a new administrative arrangement. But actually, the primary castle emerges at Tickle. This becomes the secular centre, actually reusing a Saxon, a pre-existing Saxon place. And the ecclesiastical centre emerges at Blythe. Lawton keeps some importance. But really, it's it becomes kind of a secondary or even a tertiary centre to these two, and it does suggest Tickhill again is is somewhere that's occupied. It's occupied throughout the medieval period into the post-medieval period. This is the main estate centre at Tickhill, and at Lawton, something's different going on. It's purely a power exchange, and that happens through uh, castle building. So understanding castles then, the few that we have excavated castles where we've got evidence of pre-conquest occupation and elite residents, they're very, very few and far between <coughs> and actually poorly understood. I hope that our, our work is showing how, really, from you know a couple of weeks' work of intensive local study, geophysics and topography, we can start to understand why castles are where they are. And I think, actually, the more we look at these places, the more we understand they're not here for military purposes. They're here, actually, for transfer of power. They're here because Anglo-Saxons were living here beforehand and the Anglo-Saxon elite. So we should move away from these very, very few and actually piecemeal excavations we have. We actually hope to roll this this project methodology and this sort of uh, concept uh, to other places as well Uh, just to finish that preoccupation with castles being military it's rooted into you know I started looking at castle under attack for this for this picture and there was all sorts and actually castles we 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 really have this preoccupation of it being military that's not always the case Um, he-man maybe uh, but not William the Conqueror Uh, If you were interested in what I've got to say, this comes out next week. It's a very short piece um, in current archaeology, which kind of summarises the main points of our work at Lawton and and where we want to take it forward. But that's all I've got to say, and I'll take any questions. Mm -hmm. Thanks.
0: Thank you for listening to Archaeology in Ale. For more information about our podcast and guest speaker, please visit our page on the Archaeology Podcast Network and check the show notes which are attached to this episode. You can get in touch with us at Archaeology in the City on Facebook, WordPress, Instagram, or Twitter. If you have any questions or comments, we'd love to hear from you. Join us next month when our talk will be led by the University of Sheffield's Colin Marini, speaking on the Roman fort of Naveo. See you next time.